0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate
1: portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor. My name is Nick Hill. I'm your co-host today, and I am joined today and every Tuesday and Friday when we release these awesome episodes by my good friend, real estate extraordinaire, Daniel Foch. Dan Going on, man. Not much. This is actually my first time recording in my new
0: sauna pand booth, which is good. Ooh. It's been nice. Hopefully, the sound quality is better. I know I put people through a little bit of ear pain with a couple of, I think something happened to my mic when I was traveling and my sound wasn't exceptionally good for a bit there. So I apologize. Thank you for
1: tolerating it. Thank you for those of you who stuck around. Hey, what about thanks to me? I have to do it every twice a week here. Come on. Yeah, for real. <laughs> We all accept your apology. And Dan's, you've actually built a studio under the stairs. So you're taking Harry Potter, but instead of Harry Potter to tease, you're Harry Potter, as in Harry Podcaster, That's under me. the stairs guy. That's me. If you want a picture of Dan's studio, we'll put one maybe on the Patreon so you can see where Dan's doing his podcast. But anyways, enough about uh, Dan and Harry Potter. We have got a hell of an episode for everyone today. Today, we're going to be talking about Opum. which is (laughs) OPM, which is other people's money, and more specifically, how to buy real estate without any of your own money. Sounds a little bit like a get-rich-quick scheme to me, Nick. Well, that's because it is. Almost sounds too good to be true. That's probably also because it is. Wait, what? Yeah, a little bit of a spoiler alert there, but one quick housekeeping item before we dive into the episodes, Canadian real estate investor groups... We're starting them across the country. We all want you to be a part of it. We're looking for an acronym. Canadian Real Estate Investor Groups comes out as CRAIGS. I like CRAIGS. I've, I've got one buddy named Craig. He's a good guy, but I don't know if I love that acronym for our, you know, for our meetups. Yeah, It kind
0: of makes me think of Craigslist, which could also be an exceptionally bad thing, but maybe our CRAIGS can overpower it. I feel like on that note, we need an acronym for the show, like C R E I. But I don't know how you'd pronounce it. Maybe like Cray, like like that shit, Cray.
1: Yeah, I mean that'd make for good T shirts. But you know, we also the the name of the company that our our personal name of our corp that runs this podcast is Canadian Real Estate and Media, which is in an acronym is is Cream. So we kind of like that. We I like we're- that little Wu Tang. Yeah, a little Wu-Tang where, you know, casuals, everything around me. Undecided on Craigs. But anyways, we'd love your input. So shoot us an email if you've got any great ideas. So... On that note, the meetups are.
0: We're trying to set them up across the country, and so we do have a Vancouver one planned in early April. We'll have a date out soon. But what we're going to do is we're going to set up a meetup group for most major cities. If you don't see your city on the meetup link, which is in, in the show notes, just ask us and we'll add it. And then once that meetup group, that local meetup group, your city's meetup group hits a hundred members, we're going to come out. We're going to do an event for you. So. We don't even decide the order or the outcome of of this or the order of operations. Whichever cities hit 100 members 1st we'll get the meetup. So the race is on, folks. Now, Nick, on to the main event.
1: Yes, yes. Back to Opum or Other People's Money. Not to be confused with Other People's Money, which is a 1991 American romantic comedy directed by norman Jewison, starring one of my favorite actors ever danny devito classic rom-com leading male right there as larry the liquidator a successful corporate raider who's become rich buying up companies and selling off their assets uh, sounds like a great film i might have to watch that later today uh, yeah i always love me a good devito film also not to be confused with
0: other People's Money, Inside the Housing Crisis, and the Demise of the Greatest Real Estate Deal Ever Made, which is actually one of my favorite books, in which a veteran New York Times reporter dissects one of the most spectacular failures in real estate history.
1: Yeah, I'm just reading the summary on Amazon here. Real estate giant Tishman Spire and his partner BlackRock lost billions of dollars when their much vaunted... Purchase of the Stuyvesant Town Peter Cooper Village in New York—that's a mouthful. New York City failed to deliver the expected profits, but how did Tishman Spire walk away from this deal unscathed? While well, others took the financial hit, and MetLife scored a three billion dollar profit, illuminating the world of big real estate and the too big to fail. For banks, other people's money is a riveting account of politics, high finance, and the hubris that ultimately led to the nationwide real estate meltdown. Sounds like a good read. Damn good book, man, for sure. It's a must read for listeners who are
0: into that specific subtopic and you want to kind of get into the more high finance side, but not exactly what we're talking about today. Kind of loosely related. yeah. I guess it is. It might answer some of the questions in that synopsis that could be explained by some of the phenomena that we'll be talking about in this episode. So, Nick. What is other people's money?
1: Simply put, other people's money is using capital that isn't yours to fund an investment that you benefit from. Wow. Tough explanation of groundbreaking (laughs) stuff.
0: It's almost like you could just call it other people's money. Like we should have come up with that. (laughs) This can be done in one of two ways, though people are trying to turn real estate into rocket science and they might try and tell you that there are multiple ways, but it's really two ways that you can use other people's money to invest in real estate. Number one is debt and number two is equity. The most simple iteration of OPM or other people's money is just buying a house with someone else or co-investing. That's typically the place we recommend starting as an investor because the further iterations of OPM are very sophisticated and- We're really just going to be brushing the surface of a lot of this stuff. And once you start getting into the securitization of housing and selling shares and getting into more thorough corporate structures, you really want to have a securities lawyer involved. If you need one of those, we have an excellent one. He's a listener on the podcast, good friend of mine. Send us a message and they're very expensive, just so you're aware, to get (laughs) these done. And we'll talk about that because it's often a reason why finding OPM isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do. Nick,
1: get us started on... The D word. Let's talk about debt, baby. Sorry, that was uh, I this, this is a reason I'm not a singer and I, and I speak for a living here. I like it. <laughs> so let's talk I'm about glad debt. I'm you did it. I'm
0: typing that into the notes. I'm like, I wonder if I could convince this guy to do this.
1: Yeah, well, I saw that sing it like it, sing it like it's about, uh, you know what? And anyways, here we go. The process of getting debt is supposed to be faster, more systematized and has a rigid underwriting process. So debt is a few things. It's a loan. It's a person giving you money that is not involved in the deal. So they have no say in your operations. The cost of capital is fixed, usually at a a set interest rate for a set amount of time. The money is paid back on schedule, though there are some exemptions like interest reserves or balloon payments that we'll talk about another time. Their payment is not performance based, so it's not tied to profit. And bankers and lenders are typically paid first in real estate deals because their loans need to be discharged in order for you to sell that property or or really move on to the next step with that property. Yeah, because it's registered on title there. Exactly. Next up,
0: let's talk about
1: equity. See,
0: I told you I could do it too.
1: It's (laughs) nice to know that your singing voice is worse than mine. (laughs) Yeah,
0: perfect. (laughs) This isn't a singing podcast. That's why we talk. Equity is an investment. This means that the person giving you money is involved in the deal. They get shares and votes and they're basically trading more risk for their ability to have some degree of control of that risk. So having a say in the deal or having a say in some sort of capital allocation pieces there. The cost of capital is typically more variable in that respect. It's a percentage of profits typically. This article on Investopedia, Nick, here, you want to go through it quickly?
1: Yeah, let's, let's look at this. It says the main advantage of equity financing is that there is no obligation to repay the money acquired through it. But then it goes on to say, of course, a company's owner wants it to be successful and provide the equity investors with a good return on their investment, but without required payments or interest charges, as is the case with debt financing. So equity financing places no additional financial burden on the company since there are no required monthly payments associated with equity financing. The company then has more capital available to invest in the growing business, which if you have a business, you know that that's priority number one, capital allocation back into the business to reinvest. But that doesn't mean there's no downside to equity financing. In fact, the downside can be quite large. In order to gain funding, you'll have to give those investors, a percentage of your companies, you're giving away ownership. You will have to share your profits and consult with your new partners anytime you make a decision affecting the company. The only way to remove these investors is to buy them out, which will likely be more expensive than the money they originally gave you. Yeah, a lot of people
0: for these reasons think that equity is less risky than debt. And I think that there's, I mean, it's it's a difficult discussion to have. I mean, especially when you hear a lot about these, I think it was maybe in that WeWork documentary or there was some other stuff like- We crashed. Some, yeah. Some tech related like pop culture stuff where they're talking about fundraising. And if you start to personally guarantee some of these equity positions or if you have equity investors, it's not like you're immune because they were equity rather than debt. Right, like yeah, I mean it's they typically as an investor knew that they were taking more risk, and that's what eighty percent of the stuff that we're about to explain to you is designed to communicate. Talk about offering memorandums or different GPLP structures is basically making sure that your investors know the risk that they're taking, so that if something does go wrong, it's harder for them to have recourse against you. But equity investors will still pursue people they'll still try and lean them they'll still try and and collect on that money that they lost right so i think that it's a little bit naive to just say oh yeah you know like it's equity so it's way safer it can tend to be but honestly most equity deals where you're getting a sugar daddy in in a lot of cases <laughs> are are really expecting one of three things priority guarantee or control so priority through preferred equity you end up basically paying it like debt anyway you pay them before you get paid through something called the promote structure. Basically, where someone gets paid until a certain hurdle or rate of return is achieved and then the payment terms change. So let's say your investor gives you $100,000 on the condition that they get their $100,000 back before anyone else gets paid in the deal. Then once they get that money back, you can split the deal 50-50 after that as an example. Another example might be a guarantee. You personally guarantee the loan or the equity capital and you have to pay it back if the project fails the control they gain some sort of project control through voting shares or dictating the way that that capital can be used or exited from the deal quickly compare this to debt by looking at a worst case scenario so your investor gives you $100,000 to buy a property and something goes wrong with the deal you're underwater and the property isn't worth what you paid for it now your equity investor or partner won't let you sell it unless they get all their capital back the property is losing it money every month and that money is coming out of your pocket because your equity investor didn't guarantee the loan so they don't care if it's serviced now that they know that you're not getting a return on the, or that they're not getting a return on their investment. All they care about is if their principal is protected, their original investment. So now you're basically in a liquidity trap and you're forced to forfeit your equity or the whole deal to give it to them or you basically continue bleeding out. It's an extreme example, but that's what rescinding some of your control can look like in some of these scenarios. Another example is where maybe they could exercise a shotgun clause which forces you to sell if a certain outcome isn't received.
1: Yeah, and the only way to eliminate that is by having less sophisticated investors. And this is why you see a lot of fundraisers focus on quote-unquote unsophisticated investors. And by no mean unsophisticated doesn't mean novice or dumb or or whatever. It just means you're not at like an institutional level, right? So some vehicles like crowdfunding, syndicated mortgages, mix or EMDS, etc., all of which have their own horror stories, and we will do an episode on on maybe horror stories within that space. For crowdfunding, some good examples would be Equifund, Addy, Willow, Fundrise, Real Crowd, Lofty, etc. The problem with these vehicles is that you have a large pool of investors and you need to deal with investor relations. Now that's a lot investor relations is pretty much what it sounds like, you know, the IR department is a division of any business such as such as the ones we mentioned, usually a larger one whose job it is to provide investors with an accurate account of company affairs. Now this helps private and institutional investors make informed decisions on whether to invest in that company or not. So basically you need to have the same resources as a public company if you want to have as many investors as a public company.
0: Yeah, in Canada, there's also limits on the check sizes you can collect from crowdfunding investors. I think it's $2,500 cap per investment limit and 10 k annually. So $25 per project, $10K annually from that specific investor. And a cap 12-month raise of $1.5 million for the issuer of the project. And the other thing is in the States, sorry, Nick, before you jump on to the debtor equity question here is in the states they have the jobs act right and the jobs act basically jobs stands for i think it was jumpstart our businesses our business startups and basically what it was designed for was to allow for crowdfunding and it's a much more robust crowdfunding system than what we have in canada so a lot of the the lore literature that you're getting around opm and fundraising in real estate is America is a much bigger market. Their content is going to spill over north of the border. Canada isn't as as wild west, I would say. It's actually funny before, and I'm, I'm getting off track here, and I know we have a really long episode, but somebody, I remember I was telling you, because I was fundraising on a deal, that racetrack deal, which I'll have to do a whole thing on someday. But yeah, for sure. It was in the car industry, and we we're talking about I was like, why is it? So these guys had an identical project, but it was in upstate New York and they fundraised instantly, like literally sold out, oversubscribed right away. And we were just trickling in on having people interested. And what's the difference? And he's like, we have this saying in the, in the racing industry that Canadians are first to be last. You know, Nobody's in a hurry to... Oh, the, yeah, I know. It, it was, but it was, such an, it was such a US thing to hear, right? And he was like, but you know, the Canadians... And I was like, why do you think that is? And he said, oh, I can tell you exactly why it is. It's because in the States, it's kind of like that shoot first, ask questions later. It's like, do the deal. And then worst case scenario, if it blows up, we have a very robust litigation system so we can sue each other. And that's like literally he was like the differentiator is the fact that we it's so easy to sue one another in the states." I was like, that's really interesting insight. Anyway, let's get back to the debtor equity question here.
1: Yeah, so the debtor equity question in this respect really comes down to who would you rather owe money to? A bank, a private lender, a person richer and more successful and probably more resourceful than you are, or a bunch of random people on a crowdfunding platform that paid 2,500 dollars each online? Right. And I know my answer, and
0: I'll get to it a little bit because, you know, we're going to talk about how if I'm using OPM. I find equity to be very expensive. So I actually typically would try and get to as high of a debt position as I can. If a deal good enough for me that I'm like, I want to take this thing out to market, I'm going to squeeze it on, I'm going to lever up on it. And I don't, that's not financial advice. Don't go and lever up, don't get to the highest leverage position you possibly can, but you are getting into a leverage position. You got to think about it this way when you're borrowing somebody else's money to fund your deal, right? Yeah, they're an equity investor. Yeah, they're a partner whatever it is, but you still have, even if it's, you do have a contractual obligation to do the best that you can for them, but you also have a moral obligation to try and deliver a return. And so it's just as much of an obligation if I owe 90% in debt on a project than if I owe 90% in equity on a project or 80% in debt and 10% in equity. Anyway, it really becomes a personal preference at that point for you as an investor, how you want to compose your capital stack, who you want to owe money to. The reality is when people act like it's less risky because they think equity has less recourse. And you're talking about non-recourse loans, which are more common in the States versus recourse loans, which is almost everything in Canada, where they can start going after all of your personal assets and stuff like that. But it's, how do you want to compose your capital stack? Wait, 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 wait. Is it time for my favorite
1: segment, the dictionary? Yeah, you can't say capital stack and expect me not to provide an explanation. So... (laughs) capital stack. This is from our friends at Altus Group. We'll link this in the show notes. The two main types of private financing a developer can obtain are debt and equity, which we've covered. Debt is usually provided by a lender such as a bank or another financial institution. Equity can be provided by a number of parties from large institutions to private family offices or even individuals. And within each of the debt and equity categories are subcategories of each, such as senior or mezzanine capital for debt, Equity can be a mix of preferred or common equity, and we'll briefly discuss these subcategories. So the combination of all of the different types of financing for commercial real estate development is commonly known as the capital stack and provides a representation of not only how much of each type of financing is provided, but also the order of precedence each type takes in the project. There's an image on the site that provides a breakdown in capital stack. Check that out. And we've included video for this podcast. 10 minutes are free on YouTube and the rest can be found on the Patreon. So go check that out. That's in the show notes as well.
0: The percentage split between the different types of capital is often very flexible and not every project will have every type of capital involved. So the numbers provided should be really for conceptual understanding of the capital stack. Some projects may have other types of financing, such as government grants as part of the capital stack. The order of precedence in the capital stack goes bottom to top. So as does the level of risk for each type of capital. So senior debt has the highest priority of cash flows of all types. And so that's typically your mortgage, let's call it. And common equity would have the lowest priority of cash flow. The flip side to the priority in cash flow is the potential return.
1: Now, let's talk about senior debt or seniore debt if if you're Italian. (laughs) It charges an interest rate, right? Either fixed or floating, but the return to the lender is limited to the rate of the interest charged. So common equity on the other hand has almost unlimited potential and the level of return it can earn. As you move up the capital stack from your senior mortgage debt to your junior mortgage debt and throughout, each type of capital bears more risk and more potential return. As you see, the fundamental rule, risk versus return, holds in commercial real estate financing as well. The capital providers who are exposed to the lowest level of risk also will receive the lowest amount of return.
0: Beautiful. It is nice to see that. And so the lowest piece there would be debt. That's your typical mortgage. And then it's like, what can you stack on top of that, right? Before we finish off with the types of debt and equity, I want to mention something about OPM, other people's money. I've tried to say this a few times already, but let me be clear. It sounds too good to be true for a reason. If you can't easily find the money to do your first deal, there's a chance you shouldn't be doing that deal. This could be for a variety of reasons. You're unqualified, you don't have a track record, you don't have the skills or you're not
1: resourceful enough, but mostly you don't have the money. And why don't you have that money? Because you don't have the track record or skills or qualifications to execute a deal properly, also known as you haven't done a good enough deal yet, or you'd have the money. You starting to see a pattern here? So the question is, why don't you have
0: the money? Capitalism rewards people who are good at earning and allocating capital or money. The easiest way to identify yourself as someone who is good at earning and allocating capital is to have money. So if someone is going to trust you and your ability to do real estate deals, well, you have to provide evidence that you're capable of doing that. If you have no skin in the game, if you're trying to do a deal, no cash deal, because we always hear about this, buy real estate with zero money. Why would somebody else put their money in if you don't have any
1: Exactly, because if the deal is that good, or if you're so good at doing deals, why haven't you taken the risk and done it with debt, which is not financial advice, but an honest question. Aren't you asking someone else to take the risk for you? Because asking someone for equity, you're also saying that you don't want to take any risk. So why would they want to? Well, the answer is simple, money. Now you have to compensate them more for taking the risk for you. But what about all the other problems we just outlined as to why people can't attract capital? Well, if your problem is you're unqualified,
0: take courses, get qualifications. There are a number of free courses you can take in real estate investing on Coursera, which I think is like a monthly subscription or edX, which I've done quite a few of like they have, I'm just on their website right now, socially responsible real estate development from MIT on edX. And you can take the course, you can see the whole syllabus for free. You just have to pay if you want a certificate as an example.
1: Yeah. And if you don't have any experience, volunteer, work for free. Dan and I both did for years and continue to help and volunteer with certain organizations, including ULI, Build, NAOP, and other real estate groups and associations. Offer a service to people that are doing deals or people that you want to be like or aspire to, even consider taking a hit on fees being to be involved in deals. If you can provide a service to people that are doing that type of transactions, they will want you. You, have, you guys have no idea how many times I emailed people 10 plus years ago and I would work for free. I'd go and offer my services for free. Dan, I know you did the same stuff. right? There's there's huge merit in doing something like that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. That's something that I've personally done a lot to have the opportunity to work with investors and developers. Like I know I talk a lot on here that I typically am very protective of my commission. I usually don't drop my fee in a transaction, but to work on the right deals, to take on the right clients, I was always comfortable doing it because I wanted to be providing a service and I wanted to start, sometimes I would go volunteer I'd say, look, tell me if I could find you the perfect property, tell me what it is. I'll go cold call. I'll go like, you know, I'll be your acquisitions department just to have the exposure so that when I got something that, you know, even they're rejecting like 99 and a hundred deals, right? Just to get the feedback from them so I could see the way that they looked at transactions. So if you don't have the skills yeah. on top of that, sorry, do you want to jump in quickly?
1: I was gonna say it reminds me of how we first met. Yeah, actually. No, a, you yeah. were doing a deal and and what happened? I, you know, years and years ago, you you had a deal. I I knew the location, I was interested in the deal, and what happened? And then never ended up getting the deal done because unfortunately it was destroyed by a hurricane years later, but didn't get the deal done. But Look where we are now, all because I DM'd you. I put together a bunch of packages. I brought investors and, sure. and actually made it worth your while to to bring me in on that deal. And you know, now we've done dozens of deals together. Yeah. So it can happen, guys. Yeah. Yeah. And we did actually land an equity investor who d- did a different
0: deal. So if you don't have the skills, cultivate them, right? Like I said before, take courses, practice, ask other investors or operators, or go to a Canadian real estate investor podcast meetup. These are things that you can do either for free or for a fee, like managing property, modeling deals, underwriting deals. I mean, it's not uncommon t- for lenders or organizations to pay an underwriting fee. Like literally you can get paid to model deals, right? Quote renovations, work in the space that you want to want to be in, sell properties. You don't, people are wholesaling every day. It's The industry is kind of not having a great time right now, but you can do that, right? Talk to realtors who are in the space that you want to be looking in, cultivate those skills.
1: Yeah. And if you're still lacking that money and if you don't have guarantees or covenant that makes you a credible borrower or an equity partner, then, you know, it should be your job to try to accumulate as much quote unquote wealth as possible. Now, wealth is a weird word because it makes you think of a ton of money, but you don't need a ton of money to get involved. You know, if you come with to someone with 10, 20, 30 grand and they know that that's all you've got, but you're also bringing a whole bunch of sweat equity and you found the deal and all this stuff, it really goes to show skin in the game, right? You gotta be willing to risk your assets. Find partners or partner or build a team who can increase your credibility, but also your credit worthiness.
0: This is to say when you're talking about scale and growth, if you want to go really over the top, if you want to get to that point where you're fundraising or whatever it is. I am i wouldn't typically say to people, go into a risk position if you just want to gradually accumulate wealth through the get rich slow scheme, right? The get rich quick scheme doesn't exist. It's a shit ton of work. And that's what we're describing to you is that work is the risk is all of those is the blood, sweat and tears that goes into getting rich quick. But the get rich slow scheme, it shouldn't take a lot of risk. Real estate isn't an exceptionally risky asset. Leverage debt is risky, Right. Real estate isn't risky. People who have enough money and knowledge to become equity investors got to that position for a reason. This is important to remember because they're good at making money. So if the deal you're bringing someone is a deal that's objectively an amazing deal, you're actually taking on a risk. You're sacrificing your enterprise ability because if it's a great deal, it's actually not that hard to do. Typically, good deals aren't that hard to do. So why wouldn't they just do it themselves? You need to bring value to the table. Their value is their money. What is your value? Answer that question, and you will figure out how to attract capital to yourself and to the deals you want to do. You have to lead with how you can offer value.
1: And once you've done all these things we've just mentioned above, you've got the skills, you've done some deals, you've met the right people. Guess what? You probably don't need opum or other people's money anymore, or at least as much as you originally did.
0: Yeah, it's it's actually hilarious cuz like there's a second order effect to that. Social media is filled with gurus acting like it's easy to like go do deals with other people's money and selling courses on how to make money in real estate with no money.
1: Yeah. And a lot of these people try to connect with us and and they come and they do their pitch, but it seems like their objective is really just to activate our audience to be other people's money people in the equation by selling them a course as a service. Trust me,
0: if honestly, like this is totally legit. If I could figure out a way to make money in real estate with $0, the last thing I would be doing is running a service business or an education business selling my secrets on the internet. I promise.
1: Well, stay tuned for that because we literally had a leading private equity group on the podcast. That was Graybrook. I can't remember the episode name right now, but we'll we'll link it in the show notes or, or just search Graybrook and, and it'll pop up. These two groups are funding projects like the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Miami, and they are using large scale equity investments. And they can't take the reputation risk of you know being a quote unquote guru these days. The other thing is you
0: could also have the money and not experience, right? So maybe you're a high earner, an excellent saver. You've had a windfall of money or made a million dollars trading GameStop or Dogecoin or something ridiculous like that. But you haven't really ever done a real estate deal, but you want to. Well, you've got a valuable asset too right? You're the supply side of this equation. Meet people who are doing deals, go to meetup events, learn about the real estate space, because you can probably actually maximize some of your capital with people who are better executors. Go do a deal, get a return on your capital, become part of a transaction, strap yourself to somebody and you can learn through osmosis. You can meet them through us, through the online forum that we're hoping to build or through our meetup groups as an example.
1: Yeah. Dan, before you jump on, I just, I just think that's like one of the oldest and most simple exchanges in real estate investing, right? You've got someone with money and not a lot of time and you've got someone with more time and not a lot of money. Well, that person with not a lot of money and more time needs to be able to bring value, right? The other person doesn't have to bring as much value because they're bringing the cash, which you need. So that is the age old partnership right there. Anyways, let's get back to it, Dan. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe I'll just summarize this stuff quickly before we get into like the grittier details of debt versus equity. The easiest way here is maybe to imagine yourself as the investor in these projects. So you know, if you're thinking about putting your own money into debt or equity, you'd be maybe buying bank stocks in the debt side, right? So for debt, you'd be buying bank stocks, investing in mix or mortgage investment companies, investing in syndicated mortgages or private lending directly as yourself. On the equity side, you'd be buying REITs or co-investing or joint venturing with some friends or putting your money in with a Graybrook or buying through a crowdfunding platform like Willow or Addy.
1: Yeah. So let's now bring the conversation to debt and we'll start it off with mortgages. We'll touch on banks, mix, VTBs, otherwise known as vendor takebacks. We did a great episode on that. So go check that out. And of course, private lenders. Yeah. So private
0: lenders, private mortgages are probably the closest thing to OPM that you're going to find in the lending space because there were points in time where you could get like hard money. And I mean, I guess it still exists, but it get you up to a leverage point where going where no man had ever gone before, right? Like getting to (laughs) a higher leverage point that basically would be almost where you would typically get to an equity position. You know, In the States, there's hard money lenders going over 100% loan to value.
1: That's pretty crazy. I mean, some of the more Wild West investors have been known to use HELOCs, which is a home equity line of credit, unsecured lines of credit, or we've even heard of some people using credit cards to borrow for down payments. I don't think that's happening anymore, but it certainly has in the past. Obviously, we don't recommend this and it's now heavily controlled by the lending environment. Totally. And it's really risky stuff. And OSFI and most
0: lenders seem to be really cracking down on people using borrowed money beyond just credit cards, because that's just dumb. Don't do that. But, you know, using borrowed money as a source of funds for deals, especially investment deals, because
1: that chain of leverage can create risk in the market. Yeah, good point, Dan. And for example, let's say someone's borrowing from a HELOC to invest in rentals or even a HELOC to lend out as a private mortgage. Now, as the interest rate starts to go up on your HELOC, they're not making as much money on that private mortgage as they're lending out, right? The interest rates have gone the wrong way. Exactly. Or if the rental property is not in the green anymore, and it's now
0: causing them to bleed out because the cost of capital started going up. Or if property values go down, their loan to value gets bigger, and they could now be over that 80% position as a lender, as an example.
1: Yeah. And I feel like if you are above that 80% loan to value as a lender, I mean, you're basically taking the same risk as the equity investor would be in a real estate deal.
0: Definitely. And that's why those hard money lenders are charging such crazy interest rates like over 15%. Which can still be cheaper than equity, though. And that's why I like debt more than equity. If the deal makes sense with equity pricing, it'll make even more sense with debt pricing. And even if you have to go go to get hard money as an example, which I don't recommend except for the most experienced, sophisticated investors and
1: developers. And speaking about the sophisticated investor equity, let's move down the capital stack that we have a product that kind of walks the thin line between debt and equity, but is more common in the development space. So As an investor, you'll rarely see this unless you're getting pretty crazy with your structure or really stretching to get that other people's money, which if we haven't made it clear, we don't recommend. But by the way, Dan, take us through what mezzanine debt is.
0: Yeah, mezzanine debt. This is from dealpath.com. So, A real estate mezzanine loan is a type of financing that investors take to fuel acquisitions or development projects. Mezzanine loans are subordinate, so they go behind the senior debt within the capital stack, but receive priority over the equity. So, If the project goes belly up, the lenders are getting paid before the mezzanine, but the equity guys are getting paid after them, depending on how much money is left to distribute. They take their name from the building of mezzanines, which sit one level above the ground floor.
1: I love these. Everything's very cut and dry like re, today. Yeah, real, the,
0: well, like real estate people are like, what should we call this type of debt? Yeah. Like, oh, well, let's just name it after a building, guys. Like, so Yeah, let's really name the it after only thing a Florida
1: building. Yeah. Well, next we're going to be covering hallway debt. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. That doesn't exist. <laughs> the straight and narrow stuff doesn't exist. So when senior debt doesn't cover the cost of a purchase or a development project, investors can use mezzanine loans to bridge that gap almost similar to a bridge loan that we see in, in the res space, right? Mezzanine bridge loans help investors boost their return on investment by providing additional capital without selling the maximum possible equity. As a combination of both debt and equity financing, real estate mezzanine loans are unsecured, meaning they are typically don't require physical collateral. In the event a borrower defaults or experiences bankruptcy, lenders can recoup their interest returns in the form of of equity instruments. And we're not talking like guitars and harmonicas. We're talking the actual assets here. Yeah, mezzanine. Yes. (laughs) If structured
0: as equity, it can take the form of a preferred equity stake, which we'll get to in a bit mezzanine capital has lower priority to cash flows and has more limited rights of foreclosure than does a senior lender. And we just talked about foreclosure in the most recent episode, distressed properties. Mezzanine providers enter into agreements with the senior mortgage lender called intercreditor agreements that lay out sort of options provided to the mezzanine lender in the event that they get defaulted on. Because the... Opposite effect of the capital stack is people tend to default in reverse too, right? Like if you're mm-hmm. you're going to stop paying RBC last as an example, right? You know, the person at the bottom with the best and biggest often piece of debt but also the cheapest. Now, I guess since we kind of threaded that line between debt and equity, we might as well just segue right into equity. So, let's talk about limited partnerships. Key difference between a limited partnership is it's not a separate legal entity like a corporation is. This means that each general partner is jointly liable for the debts of the business.
1: Yeah, but let's be honest, even with a corporate structure, you're often expected to personally guarantee your mortgage anyways, Dan. You know, we've just done this for for one of our new corps where we had to put together personal net worth statements and put a whole bunch of guarantees together.
0: Yeah, this is it's such an important distinction that you're making because when we talk about getting in the business of real estate, like maybe Nick, maybe in 10 or 15 years, our business of real estate will be so good that we won't have to personally guarantee deals, right? Maybe. that'd be lovely. Right? And maybe the corporate guarantee will be strong enough. But for now, we're still like, when we talk about recourse earlier, the banks still want somebody to go after if shit hits the fan. And in that case, they want all of the partners in the corporation or the shareholders or directors in the corporation to personally guarantee the deals. And it kind of goes back to my primary question. Why wouldn't your investor just do the deal themselves? If you're bringing on an investor, it's because you're trying to do the deal that you can't do on your own, which means that you don't have sufficient money to qualify for the mortgage for that deal in a lot of cases. If this is the case, chances are, you probably also don't have sufficient income or net worth for your personal guarantee to be valuable to the deal either. And I'm not saying this as an insult, by the way. We've done deals where we've had investors just come in and provide guarantees or even fully qualify for the mortgage themselves. But we've also done deals where we're the general partners and investors are limited partners.
1: So let's stop there and look at a general partner and a limited partner. The main difference between these types of partnerships is that general partners have full operational control of a business and unlimited liability in the business sense. Limited partners have less liability and do not take part in the day-to-day business operations. Keyword is limited,
0: which means their risk is limited and their liability is limited. And I mean, ideally, in a perfect investor scenario, also their involvement is limited, which means the GP takes on all of the risk, but also the operations.
1: Yeah, exactly. And let's say you're fundraising for a real estate deal that you are the GP on. So you're the general partner, right? So remember that a lot of people think OPM, other people's money means other people's risk, but it doesn't. It means your risk almost exclusively because if you mess up the deal, you're going to be on the hook for the debts of the bad deal. And you better believe that OP, other people is going to want their M back too, M being money.
0: So, the other, I like that. The other piece of the partner is that the partners are taxed independently in a GPLP structure. So, you're taxed personally on the income, almost like a REIT, right? So, you get this pass through entity. Again, probably tax questions. I think we're doing an episode with Patrick again soon. So, we can talk a little bit about that, but you get taxed personally on the income from a partnership because it flows through.
1: Yeah. Now we spoke to one of our very intelligent partners at LandBank, which is one of our businesses, who also works in the investment banking and crowdfunding space. And he mentioned the thing with raising for limited partnerships is you need to ensure every investor is an accredited investor. In order to issue securities, you'll also need to be offering a memorandum or an OM, as well as an EMD, which is an exempt market dealer, which we'll get to. Yeah so an
0: exempt market dealer from PCMA Canada which is I guess also direct from the regulatory body they're fully registered securities dealers so you know we- Some of us growing up in Canada know of dealers of other types. (laughs) These are people who deal securities, right? They're fully registered and engage in the business of trading in prospectus exempt securities. So any securities that qualify for exempt market clients, EMDs may focus on certain sectors, oil and gas, real estate, minerals, technology, or have a broad cross sector of business models. Clients include companies, individual investors, accredited investors, sophisticated or high net worth individuals who are eligible to trade securities in the exempt market, that's what an accredited investor is, or eligible investors who are qualified to purchase exempt securities pursuant to an offering memorandum or OM, which is I I think what allows you to have non-accredited investors in there. EMDs basically create an OM or offering memorandum for each offering or equity opportunity they have and they circulate it for investment to their investors, you can go to an EMD and ask them for an OM, put your project on the shelf, they call it, and they'll raise money for you. But the cost of this on a per deal basis is pretty high, and it's a sunk cost. They're going to say, write me a check for thirty to hundred thousand dollars. Sometimes when you have securities lawyers involved, even more. I don't like. I've seen you know deals that are even more expensive than that, and there's no guarantee that your deal gets funded. So there's capital risk there. Some of the bigger fundraising groups have their own EMD rather than using a third party. An example of this would be Greybrook, who we had on the show. An article from 2019, you know, just quickly because it explains really well what they do and sort of the differentiation. Greybrook closes $21 million equity financing for residential development in partnership with a couple of developers. It says Greybrook Securities offers investors the unique ability to invest alongside some of Toronto's best-in-class real estate developers. Graybrook Securities, Greybook Realty Partners and their affiliates have been involved in the creation of 50 projects totaling over 14,000 residential units and it, then the final line in this article says "GrayBook Securities is an OSC regulated exempt market dealer. Greybook Realty Partners which is a different company, different name, Realty Partners Securities provides asset management and advisory services to top tier real estate developers, landowners and private equity investors.
1: Yeah. Now let's look at these equity types because with all these equity types, except for crowdfunding, you must ensure your investor is an accredited investor and you'll typically have to fill out a form that we've included links to for BC and Ontario. The forms will be in the show notes and on Patreon in the video. So there are apparently ways to get around this. I mean, so
0: a lot of people when they're doing their their first raises and in a lot of your first deals, you're doing it through friends and family. So that's one of the exemptions. But I've heard of people like, you know, advertising and then telling investors. And then there's also, you know, ways you can fill out forms to like prove sophistication through the other level of investors that we, we had met, mentioned, like the eligible piece through OMS and even if the individual doesn't meet the sort of accredited investor criteria but that they understand the risks it's apparently very time consuming risky and a legal heavy process and i want to i want to distinguish here that circumvention of this stuff is hard for a reason it's not a good idea all of this legislature exists to protect both sides. And the reason that it sounds cumbersome and challenging and scary is because it should be challenging and it should be scary because this is what prevents people from screwing each other and it's what prevents people from getting into legal trouble when risks are realized. A lot of it comes back down to that recourse that we mentioned. Lenders have full recourse in Canada. They can go after your car. They can lean your bank account. Anybody who's ever been behind in a credit card payment knows about any of this stuff, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it starts to... Become very real, a little bit intimidating, and it all sounds quite challenging and like a lot of work. Like, what if I just want to flip a house and I want to go in with a friend of mine and we're both going to own the property together and we'll both be on the mortgage?
0: Honestly, that's probably the safest way. And I said that at the beginning probably the safest way to use OPM. And that'd be very similar to you just buying a house with a spouse or a girlfriend or boyfriend. You could do that either as a corporation, which loosely goes back to some of the things that we discussed, because, you know, if in order to If you wanted to market a portion of that company, you're marketing shares and then you're selling a security and then you need to be in the exempt markets or you do it as a group of individuals, you know, two or three buddies get together and you all buy the house as either joint tenants or
1: tenants in common. So let's talk about tenants in common and joint tenants for a second. If a tenant in common co-owner, let's say, passes away, the ownership does not automatically go to the other owners. Their share of that property becomes part of their overall estate. If a joint tenant co-owner dies, surviving co-owners inherit the deceased share of that property.
0: Yeah. So basically… Where you decide, you know, if you were doing a co-investing deal with your with your buddies, if you want them to get the whole deal if you die, or if you want it to go to your family or your kids or whatever. There's also a way to cut up the ownership through condominium tenure, which is, and this comes from the government of Ontario website, by the way. So this is also interesting, and I just looked this up because it's related to a discussion that we're having with two of our listeners who are in the middle of a fundraising process for some really cool infill development projects in Toronto right now. On the Ontario website, it says in homes that are divided into separate units, co-owners can establish a condominium corporation where each co-owner owns their unit and a share of common amenities. A condominium isn't a certain type of building such as a high rise. You know, a lot of people hear that condos, right? Condo buildings. It's a form of ownership that may apply to smaller housing types such as units within a single house. Condominium owners may be involved in the board of directors and would be subject to bylaws and rules of the condominium. I've thought about this a lot because you always see realtors selling pre-construction condos and they're like guaranteeing returns and stuff. And they're basically selling an individualized security of a larger product, right? It's basically crowdfunding, but with far fewer regulations and and the investors co-own the building per se rather than a corporation.
1: Yeah, love that, lot of great stuff there. So Dan, let's summarize everything before we wrapped up. We just learned that you can either use debt or equity as other people's money to reduce your cash requirement in a deal. Equity has restrictions worth knowing about and can be done either as co-owners, joint ventures, limited partners or crowdfunding. So how does
0: somebody act on all the information that we just provided? I think the first place would be, if you're new to this, Go buy some deals with friends as co owners and see if you can even do
1: the accountability to other investors kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, we have tons of listeners and clients looking to invest and looking for investors. So ask us as well. Fundraising is not something we really offer as a service yet, though we'd like to because of all the reasons we just described in this episode, but we're looking to make connections. We're happy to connect people. We have partners in Calgary that are doing big developments, looking for money. We have a partner in Toronto doing deals, looking for money. Yeah. And we do have a lot of people looking to
0: invest money as well, but also get the experience. And this is the thing, like you see this a lot in the in the commercial and development space where you'll get somebody who tied up a really nice piece of land and they want to bring in a development partner to because they want to be able to absorb all that information. And it's almost like a protected craft in some of these spaces. So, the developer often won't want to do it because they know this person's intentions. But we encourage that here with investing, right? Like there's a big enough pie to be cut where, you know, if you have money and you want to learn how to how to maximize that and do real estate transactions on your own, give us a shout. And we're happy to connect you with some of these other individuals who are expert executors and have reached the scale where, you know, they've done so many deals on their own that they, they need more money if they want to do more deals or bigger deals or whatever it is. So it really just comes down to, that core principle that we'll always drive home on this podcast and why we set up these meetups coast to coast and remind you to check out the meetup.com for the Canadian real estate investor podcast. This is a community, right? Real estate is a community and that's where you're going to meet other individuals. You can see them eye to eye. You can determine whether or not there's trust, right? You can, if people are out there, putting their credibility on the line by being at events or being on social media and talking about this stuff. And you have other people joining deals with you, looking at deals with you, underwriting deals, making sure that there's a degree of safety there. We always encourage people to cultivate that investment community because that's what we are.
1: Yeah. Love that. Thanks so much, Dan. We, I've got to run because I just downloaded Other People's Money, the rom-com starring Dan and DeVito, and I can't wait to watch it. So <laughs> kidding. But anyways, thanks so much for listening, everybody. We hope you got a lot out of this episode and enjoyed listening to it as much as Dan and I enjoyed doing it. Until next time.
0: The Canadian Real Estate investor is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Centre, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037.
1: Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.